If we don't have really open conversations about some of the data sets we have and how they were captured and how they can be used if they should be used and what that output looks like, you start to see those really bad examples like Amazon who used machine learning and AI to try and screen CVs and inadvertently got rid of all the women. And Monzo Bank who did the same and inadvertently screened out anybody who wasn't white. It's those types of examples that we need to stop. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Sophie Carr, the founder and director of Bayes Consulting. She shares with us how she grew her firm by tapping into and developing a hidden workforce that's able to use maths to solve tough problems and then make the maths explainable. Join me for a fun and informative discussion about maths, crowds, predictions, and the school gate. My guest today is Sophie Carr. She's the founder and director of Bayes Consulting. Sophie, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to be here. Maybe just to kind of give us a bit of background, you could tell us something about Bayes Consulting, what it does, and a bit about yourself and how you how you ended up founding it. Well, I think I'll answer those in reverse. So the simple version is I ended up founding the company because I was made redundant in 2009, and it wasn't personal. Lots of people were. And I'd got two small children and I wanted to stay in tech. And I was really struggling to find part-time roles in a technical area. So I founded my own company, never thinking it would grow, just thinking I would do that for a few years and then get a proper job. Never quite got a proper job again. I trained as an engineer. I worked as an aeronautical engineer, but did a part-time PhD in statistics. And so the company has always really worked in now what we call data science. But what does base consulting do? Well, we do a few things, but our aim is to make the world a better place using maths, not magic. So we have a couple of services that help understand where cold, mold and damp are in houses or how crowds move. And we do what most people call predictive analytics. We use statistics. What does predictive analytics mean and how does it relate to things like AI and big data? And So there's a good question, isn't it? How does it relate to AI? Because AI is such a big topic and it's a real buzzword. So let me tell you what we do and where that sits in that that sphere. Okay. So for me, predictive analytics, whether it's big data or small data, because a lot of this is really good statistics. It's not necessarily machine learning and those buzzwords. It's taking information you already have to try and work out what you think might happen in the future in certain circumstances. And you can do that with straight line graphs or curvy graphs or statistics. You could also use things like machine learning, which takes lots and lots of information and maybe finds patterns that you can't see with the human eye. And that's machine learning. Um, And deep learning, that's a bit different. That's where you use neural nets. And we don't really know how that maths works in those hidden layers. The problem with AI is it's a buzzword. So you say AI and I think of iRobot and it doesn't exist. Actual causal reasoning, thinking people AI, it's not there. And a lot of the AI that you will see is not AI. It is machine learning, some deep learning and good statistics. But if you badge it as AI these days, 
you kind of been there because everybody wants AI. What sorts of issues or questions do your clients tend to come to you with? So that's really interesting because it varies. I guess a lot of the time people come to us asking or assuming that they really want some sort of machine learning. They tend to say, you know, we don't know how to predict something. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know how things are changing or what groups we've got in our data. and We don't know how to do it. And for that type of consultancy work, we're able to look at the data and help. But we always say at the start, this might not be machine learning. Sometimes it is. But we start from the premise that statistics can get you a really long way. Another set of clients, if they want to look at the cold and damp or how crowds move in response to disturbances, such as tripping up and things like that, they're trying to actually understand their risk. In terms of the houses, how do you prioritise which ones you make warm and watertight first or how do you reach net zero? For the crowds, it's how do you make people move safely? How do you assess the um, hazards in the crowd and how do you make that safe for everybody who's in that crowd? So it depends on what they're looking at. Some is managing um, risk and helping people in that way. And the other side is we have this data. What can we do with it? What can we find? And how can it help us make those evidence-based decisions going ahead? Mm -hmm. I kind of get that, but it also sounds a little abstract. What If you can, and I realize you've got client confidentiality to work with, but can you give an example of the sorts of data or the sorts of people moving, you know, what kind of crowds, any of that? Yeah, let's give you both sides. Let's stop the crowds. Okay, so one of the issues might be that if you are holding an event and you've got lots of people coming, okay, it can be quite hard for people to understand what could happen in that crowd or how that crowd might move. So we have a tool that lets you set up a crowd. So you might know that you're running a family event. So you're going to have lots of families coming. So there might be children and middle-aged parents, or there might be some grandparents coming. You can literally build your crowd. You can say the ages and family groups or individuals or friendship groups, because they move slightly differently. And you can say how many people. And then you let them move through the area, because we'll upload a map and you can see them move. And then you can start to say, well, if I put barriers in here, to try and guide them one way. Does that create crushing points? Does that squish people up too much? And actually, they might get quite worried in that situation. So do I need to make the barriers wider? We can do that. How many entry points do I need to scan people so I don't have queues? We can look at that type of work. What happens if I've got lots of people and someone trips up? How do they move? Do they get squished at edges? Do I need to make sure that I've got ramps? And that's the type of thing we can look at. When we're looking at something on the predictive analytics, I mean, the world is your oyster. So some of the work we do is called synthetic data. And that's where people come to us and say, we have a data set and we want to mimic it. And we want a data set that moves in exactly the same way that looks like this, but we want to be able to use it in areas where we want to change proportions. So we can literally mimic your data set and make it move, and all the columns will move. I got totally lost. Why on earth would anybody want to do that? What possible thing could that help you with? So synthetic data is used in two or three different ways. Yeah. Let's come up with an example. So let's talk about sales data, okay? So you are a supermarket or a corner shop, and you've got all your sales data for tins of food and fresh food, and you want to know what would happen if you sold more fresh food or you sold more baked beans or you sold uh, more frozen food. 
inevitably, there are links between some foods. So let's say you might see that there was a link between buying burgers and burger buns and coleslaw. So we can make a data set that's fake, but moves in the same way. So if burger sales go up, so do the burger buns. But then what you can do is you can alter the samples within that data set. So you can say, what happens if I take out all my burgers? How does the data set then move? Or what happens if I increase the overall sales of my tin food by 20, 30%? What does my data set then look like? So people can start to look at what the decisions they might be making mean for the data set. And it lets them explore the full range of what they're using. The other way that people use synthetic data is if a data set is highly confidential and you don't want anybody really to be seeing this. Again, you can make a data set that moves in the same way as your data, but you could also change the parameters. So instead of a column saying going between 10 and 20, we might make it go from 98 to 2000 or something like that. And it will still move in the same way but you would never know what that data is. Very interesting. And um, why Bayes Consulting? So Bayes Consulting is a slight play on words. So these days, lots of people have heard about the Reverend Thomas Bayes and Bayes Theorem. And if you don't know what he did, he's a really cool mathematician who came up with a theorem that does everything from drive, uh, how you get your mobile phone signal, to how the Google engine works, to how your insurance is calculated, really popular. Go back to when I was doing my PhD 24 years ago. Nobody had heard of it, but nobody knew who this was, this esoteric bunch of maths. So my company is named after what I did my PhD theorem in, but he spells Bayes with a B-A-Y-E-S. I just took the E out. So if you know me, you know why my company's called Bayes. Very good. I think you've answered the question I'm going to ask you next already, but just so we can kind of get it front and center and then dive into it a little bit. What's the purpose of Bayes Consulting? So Our mission, if you want to put it that way, is to make the world a better place using maths, not magic. And actually, we want to see every life positively impacted by maths, which sounds quite grand. And the reason for that is some people leave school hating maths and they have this fear of maths and maths is a bad thing. And also when you start to talk about these buzzwords like AI, if we don't as mathematicians and statisticians, because we are a lot of statisticians in the company, if we don't engage with society about why you care about biased algorithms, why you care about biased data sets, why you care about what AI and machine learning and deep learning could give society if we get it right, but what it could do if you get it wrong in terms of ethics and morals, then we're going to lose part of society. It's going to be alienated and it's going to be scared. Where we come from, maths just brings joy and wonder to life. It can make these amazing findings. It can help people, really help people. So, you know, we have clients who we help reach net zero, who understand where to focus to help people have warm and watertight houses. We help people be safe in crowds. We can help people improve their business and their lives. So for us, it's using maths, but it's explainable math. It's not magic. And that's what drives us because we just, we love maths and it's okay to do that. Mm -hmm. And was that kind of the founding impulse that's been unchanged since the beginning? You know, how did you get to that? Because the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's not the first time you've said that. (laughs) No, 
it's not the first time. You know, it sounds like you've thought about it. So was all that thinking done right at the beginning or has the thinking evolved? What's that journey been like? So there's a strand there that has absolutely been there from the start, which is that I have an absolute fundamental belief that maths and the results of any maths and statistics you should be able to explain. Now, if you're using deep learning, you might not be able to do that as simply as drawing a line, but you have to be able to explain what you're doing. And I've never bought into the fact that you should be trying to hide in a black box or just say, oh, the math says or the computer algorithm says. You should be able to explain to people what they have and why they have it. That has been there from the start. I guess the other aspect of the business, which isn't maybe necessarily encapsulated in that, is that I've always sought to build a business where everybody can find their home in tech. So I have hired a lot of the hidden workforce. So we have more part-time men than we have part-time women. We have, uh, I think it's eight native languages in the company. We hire uh, reservists. We hire ex-armed forces. We hire the retired. Because that way we have this breadth of knowledge of maths and business that love what they do, but sometimes struggle to find a place to do it. So that desire to explain what we do and why it's important and the ability to have a job you love is what has been there from the start. So you use the phrase hidden workforce, a term that many people would immediately think, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. And I had that same thought. And then I had a second thought, which is, actually, I'm not entirely sure I do know what that is. So what is the hidden workforce? So the hidden workforce, are, I guess, a changing group of people. So when I first started, the best way to find the people I wanted was actually at the school playground, because there were an awful lot of part-time women or women without jobs who were insanely qualified, but go back to sort of 2009, actually getting part-time work was quite hard. And we've always offered fully flexible hours and I don't care when you work, just get the job done. And we also have always offered enough leave that you can cover all your half terms and summer and we shut down for Christmas. So we found people in what would be a traditional nine to five, five days a week in the office job, impossible to do or exceptionally hard to do. We managed to find them. We were hiring spouses of serving armed forces personnel who moved around every two years. We didn't bother where you worked. We were hiring people who could only work during school hours. Again, that wasn't a problem. Only wanted part-time work, not a problem. They were over 60. Didn't really mind. We were managing to find people who might not be able to get work in other ways, but would also prepare to work for a small company because not everybody wants to work for a small company by any stretch. A question I probably should have asked earlier. You said small company. How big is Bayes? <laughs> so we are 11. So we are small, super proud to be small. So we're 11 people split across the tech team and the non-tech functions. So project management and things like that. And are most of those 11, have they been with you for a while or is it every couple of years, it's a whole different cast of characters? So that's an interesting one, because if you go back to the start of the pandemic, uh, 2020, there were two of us. So we grew very quickly during the pandemic when there was a need. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from June 2020 to August 2021, we went from two to 11. 
Is that because all of a sudden there was a lot more, you know, if I could put it this way, a lot more supply, a lot more people looking for that kind of work? No. Or was it all of a sudden you had people coming at you going, help, help, help? It was that. We had people going, could you, can you, how do you? And I said, okay, uh, we can. But I think it's that age old story. If you see the tip of the iceberg and not the years before that, where I'd been building up the reputation for what we'd been doing and how we did it and that we were delivering and that we were good at what we did. And I say we because there were two of us. And then there was just that tipping point where suddenly the world needed statisticians and mathematicians or was prepared to say they wanted statisticians and mathematicians because a lot of stats was needed during COVID. But not all of our work was COVID by any stretch. And I think it's an interesting thing that was kind of hidden. We'd been remote and we'd bobbled between two and three people. And prior to COVID, lots of people had gone, oh, that's nice, you're wholly remote. Just wait till you're a proper company and you've got an office. And the moment the pandemic hits, we're in the cloud and we're remote and we're good to go. <laughs> and we're waiting for everybody else to catch up. And suddenly what had been seen as a, oh, isn't it sweet, you're really small, was, oh, hang on, this is now the norm. We now actually have an office. We went the other way. Because a lot of my staff at that point were quite young and didn't have the luxury of a three-bed house with a living room that we can work from. It was like, okay, so how do we get you out of that when it was safe to do so? We do that by getting an office. We were viewed very differently as COVID went on. And actually what we were offering became the norm. And I think that also helped people go, oh, okay, maybe that is a normal way to work and we'll join. Yeah. I kind of hear three purposes, if I could put it that way, in what you've said. Let me just play them back partly to see if I've got it right, but also to, to get a sense of, as you're thinking about it, how do they relate to each other? What's the balance? Where's the major emphasis? One is helping clients solve problems one way or another, answer questions about the future, identify risks, make data that they want to do something with be better. A second one is kind of telling the story about how mathematics is a good thing and how it helps solve problems, you know, almost sort of advocating for maths. And then the third one is this kind of hidden workforce providing people opportunities that they might not have otherwise. So just curious, how do you see those three fitting together and whether they're all, you know, kind of equally important or one or another is more important? So the last two you said, they're just interlinked and you can't get away from it. I'm lucky to have phenomenal statisticians and mathematicians. And I know everybody says that about the team, but my lot really are phenomenal. And I just think it's awful, particularly pre-pandemic, where there was phenomenal people, really good at tech, who just couldn't find a way into tech because of the, you have to be five days in an office in order to deliver. I have to see you to know that you're doing something. I never bought into that. The reason we have the fully flex working hours and 37 days a year holiday is because if you give people the opportunity to work and focus on work when they're there, they produce amazing things. If they're worried about the school run or the delivery at home or caring commitments for families or walking the dog, they can't focus. So if you create a world where when they turn up to work, that's all they've got to do, you can find people that otherwise you'd miss. And that's just awful. Now, if you set that as the foundation and then you find these people who love maths and stats and their job, you then say, okay, how do we help people? Because I need you to explain what you're doing to the clients. 
it just flows through. So the reason we can help assess risk and look at the future and do predictions, but make the clients aware of why that is happening comes from the fact we've got really, really good statisticians and mathematicians who can talk and explain that story and say, so what? You've given us some data. Great. The impact of what you're worrying about is this. It's because they're able to do the deep work and think about it. Yeah. So that, I think that kind of takes us a little bit into to what would you say your strategy is? So that's a really interesting question because I would split our strategy into two. There is the strategy for the company, which is to grow and to do more of our work around the risk and more of our work about the crowds and the home hazards and to help people in that sense. But to do that, the strategy actually is to make sure we're investing correctly in the people. So what training do they need to have the skill sets that they've got to be confident in their work to actually then produce the results which let us grow? We can't do one without the other. I've never bought into the growing for growth's sake. We've grown very, very slowly as a company. In fact, the last sort of 18 months, we've had a relative hiring freeze. We've replaced people, but we haven't particularly grown because I wanted the team to come together. And then we bounce forwards for once a better phrase. So I guess the strategy really is people first, give them the training, make sure they're a team, make sure they're steady. And from that, grow to provide the services and the company growth. And you can look at company growth in terms of headcount and money. And ultimately to hit that point where every life's positively impacted by maths. But the strategy is people first. It sounds like your strategy, I might describe as a supply-led strategy. If we get great people and they're in a place where they have the training they need and they aren't distracted by a whole bunch of stuff, they're going to be able to do great work and the demand will come. So yes, that's the foundation of how we build the company. That only works if we deliver something that people actually need. Creating a beautiful, wonderful set of maths that has no financial requirement for anybody to buy, I think would sit more in academic research. The way that our services have been developed, and I'm not talking about some of the predictive consultancy, which is slightly different, has been to develop the services slowly over time where we have seen a repeated need for something. So it's not that we've just done esoteric great thinking and we hope there's a need for something. It's actually seeing a repeated requirement and going out to meet that need. What kind of organizations worry about these things? Is it Glastonbury? Is it the O2? Is it... Oh, I'm happy to talk to them if they're listening. Yes, we'll come and talk, <laughs> talk to those. It, it is organizations and events and venues that have crowds. Venues that have lots of different crowds because maybe you host a music concert one week and theatre the next. Uh, uh, with the dynamics of the crowd, the composition of the crowd, and maybe even the size of the crowd. and Absolutely. But also there would be quite a different set of crowd makeup in terms of age distributions and gender distributions. Okay. Okay. So you've got venues where the crowds differ. A similar type of crowd, but at lots of different smaller venues. Let's take venues that only do one thing. So maybe a cinemas. So a similar type of crowd. It might change in terms of what film you're looking at, but a similar crowd. And so it's people who need to simplify their risk assessments and their crowd safety planning because our tool will run very quickly 
lots and lots of different scenarios. So you can change the crowd. You can change what disruption you think might be happening. So somebody trips up or heaven forbid, somebody turns up with a weapon, something like that. You can just run it and see that difference quickly and feed it into your risk assessment. So all these different venue owners or operators or, you know, how do they find you? I get the supply side bit, the demand side. How do they know? How do they know it's Bayes Consulting we need? So the demand side is really interesting because for that, it tends to be us going out to conventions and going out to expositions and stalls and marketing, what you would call fairly traditional marketing channels. That's how we generate the demand at the moment. And it sounds like a lot of it's in person. You know, you go to a, an exhibition, you go to a convention, you... This is not a mass buying type of service. A lot of sales traditionally are in person. Hello, this is us. This is what we do. This is how we do it. Come and talk to us. And the whole point of going to those conventions and expos are actually just to start good conversations. I guess part of your challenge is trying to figure out where are the places that people who have the problems we can solve, where do they congregate? Where's the watering hole? Exactly. We really do have to nail down who we're looking for. What types of roles do they have? What types of jobs do they have? What do they read? Where do they go for a cup of tea? Where do we find them at the expos? What hashtags are they using on social media platforms? And that helps us actually really focus our strategy on who we should be finding, who we should be talking to. A question I just can't resist asking. To what extent do you use statistics and, you know, all this predictive modeling in it to figure all that out? I guess like most businesses, we measure a lot. You can look at all your Google analytics and your impressions and your likes and, and, and whatever it is. But yes, I would say that we are a data-driven company in terms of looking at what worked well, what was picked up, what led to conversations, what didn't lead to conversations. Particularly when you were talking about the conventions and the expos, they are not cheap. Going to those types of events really has to give a return on investment. And so we always go to one as an attendee first before we buy a stand, just to understand, do, do we see ourselves there? Do we see other companies like us there? If we don't, why not? We do all of that before we start investing, because like most companies, we can't waste money. Is there an example of a place you went, a convention or whatever, that maybe at first you weren't quite sure, but it turned out to be a standout success or the other way around? Yeah, there's all sorts of ones. So the ones we've been surprised at, there are really, really big conferences on security and all of that. And we've actually found that the smaller ones the more focused ones are where we've ended up going, partly because it's easier to stand out, but also, like you say, doing the research about who's going and finding out that most of our clientele go to the smaller, more focused ones. I think for us, it's finding those conferences that actually have the decision makers that are there and actually being able to have the conversations with the decision makers who hold the budget and the authority. That's where we look. Who wouldn't want to find places you could go to meet a super concentrated set of the decision making. Sorry, a little bit selfishly, I'm kind of thinking, where would I find a super concentrated? It's a good question to ask. It's a great question to ask. Yeah. So there are two we go to. The one I can't talk about. And the other one is not an open one, is the Police and Security Expo at Farnborough. 
everybody screamed again. I assume that's where some of the crowd stuff plays in. Yes. Okay, got it. Along the way, what surprised you most, particularly around trying to fit together the purpose, the strategy, you know, the commercial side of it, the the people side of it? What's been most surprising, positive or negative? That's a really interesting question. I think there's two different answers. So the first thing is that I was always and still am amazingly surprised that anybody wants to come and work for the company because we're so small. I always think that people want to go to the really big, shiny companies. I think what has surprised me is that as you develop that strategy and that vision about what you want the company to be, that there are other people who really buy into it in a small company because they have to come and they have to live it and breathe it and want that to work. And I'm just always amazed that there are other people who want to do this. I think the second part of that is actually aligning that with the brutal reality of business and having to make a profit in order to pay these amazing people who come. And actually working on that and understanding how you pull it all together and the actual effort it takes to run a business. I never set out to be a business owner. It was going to be me. And suddenly there's 11 of us. But the actual effort it takes to run and maintain a business that is profitable and sustainable and all of those things you want it to be, I think I massively underestimated until it hit me in the face. So kind of related to that, what advice might you give to I'll say a business leader, but given you, you know, sort of the journey you've been on, particularly somebody who's thinking about starting a business, particularly around how do you think about purpose? How do you connect it to strategy? What advice might you have? So there's a horrible reality about setting up a business, which I think people sometimes glib over because you can see all these posts online saying, oh, if you just follow your passion and you just do what you love, it'll be great. I really love cold water swimming and I would not make any money out of it. And it would be something I'd love to do all the time, uh, but I'd be hungry very, very quickly. (laughs) So if you have an absolute passion and you want to do that thing, go for it. But you have to understand how your passion turns into a strategy that ultimately will feed you. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay to say, follow your dream, but think long and hard about, is there a genuine business need for the thing you love doing? And that might be that you start it as a side hustle, or it might be that it's a thread within your overall strategy, because it's also okay to want to eat. So think long and hard about what it is you're genuinely offering and where that sits. I cannot say enough, do some research before you give up your amazing day job to go and do whatever it is you want. It's okay to build it up. I had no choice. I was made redundant. We just cracked on. But it built up slowly. It's really, really hard because I do love maths and I do love talking about what I do. But the way that I do most of my maths these days is actually maths outreach. You know, my tech team, the coding, I still get to talk about my passion, come to talk to you about maths. But it's the way in which you make that passion turn into a paying strategy. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that we might want to? Something that I am increasingly having to talk about within the world of AI that you asked me at the start, which is how do you ensure that the work you're doing, the output that you're giving is ethical, is unbiased and actually helps people? Because the more and more we start to use data and the more we start to use analytics and AI and machine learning and these buzzwords, 
if we don't have really open conversations about some of the data sets we have and how they were captured and how they can be used if they should be used and what that output looks like, you start to see those really bad examples like Amazon who used machine learning and AI to try and screen CVs and inadvertently got rid of all the women. And Monzo Bank who did the same and inadvertently screened out anybody who wasn't white. It's those types of examples that we need to stop. So I think having a really good conversation with your team about how does your strategy that you're developing, regardless of where you are, is actually inclusive, really inclusive and really diverse. And how do you get that into your team to make sure that you are operating in society is the important one for me. We've got 11 people with eight native languages. Hmm. And it just brings a different viewpoint to how you create a strategy that is inclusive. Where, if at all, does statistics fit into answering that question? So if we think about the data and you've got data sets, whatever business you're in, where statistics sits in is you can look at that data set and really understand it. And I mean, really understand it, not just how the column adds up or what the range is and the minimum, the maximum, but you can start to see how they link. You can start to see where the gaps are. You can start to see why there are gaps, why there are portions of your client base not being captured at all. Maybe a certain portion of your client base that you know exists never leaves you a review or never finishes the survey or never completes the basket. And so Asking your questions of, can I literally see my client base in my data at the start? And then once I've done my analysis, can I see them at the end? That's statistics. That's not machine learning. That's just statistics. And the, the way I look at it is, if you've got your client bases and you've split it out into however you choose to segment your clients, because there are different ways of doing that. If they're in your data set at the start, and then you do some analysis, and at the end, they've disappeared. You've done something in the middle to lose them. What's happened? And that's the way you can start to see if your machine learning is biased, if the approach you're taking is losing people. You should be able to see your client base at the start and your client base at the end, and everybody should be there. It's quite a simple question to say, are they there? But people sometimes forget to look. It's the statistics of understanding your data. And we talk about seeing the shape of it. So. You can see if the 40-year-olds are there and then they disappear or whatever it is that you're looking for. But understanding the shape of your data and how it moves and how it changes is maths and statistics. When Amazon did their algorithm, and it was a CV sifting algorithm to help them hire people, the problem was that they trained it to look for the people they already had. And the people they already had were senior men. Now, I'm not being funny, but a very quick check of, I've got great women applying and I've got no great women interviewing. It's quite, it's quite a simple, where are they? And it's that type of, if you don't look for the bias, if you don't look for what's missing, you only get what you've got. I, I'm intrigued by this. Are you seeing your customers in the data? And then are you seeing them at the end? I'm going to have to go away and ponder what that means a little bit more. So. Have I been able to give you something new? Have I taught you something you didn't know? You might very well have taught me something because sometimes I think 
having better questions is one of the most important things you can teach somebody. Very good. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wish you really well with Bayes. I'm going to hope that at some future stage we'll have an opportunity to check it and see how it's all gone. Hope so too. You take care now. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Mm-hmm.